Our scripture passage this morning comes not from the book of Isaiah. After a long time, we're outside the book of Isaiah. We wrapped that up last week. And so today what we're doing, we're in between sermon series at the moment. Next week, we'll pick up a sermon series in the book of James. But today, we're going to take uh, just a, a one-week quick look at a passage in John. We're going to look at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And would you turn there, and if you could stand this morning for the reading of of God's Word. This passage is an opportunity to talk about God. Now, that's probably a given when you walk into a church on a Sunday morning that you think we're going to talk about God. And we're going to do that this morning. And we're going to talk about God very directly and very specifically around His relationship, God the Father's relationship with the Son. This Trinitarian picture that we see in this, uh, this place in Scripture, it's as if the curtain, so to speak, is pulled back and we get to see God talking to himself, God talking in his Trinitarian glory. And I hope as we read this this morning that it touches our hearts, it even touches our affections as we see the wonder and the glory of God together. So let's turn our attention to God's word. John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your words. Lord, as we turn to them and, and seek to learn from them, to be transformed by them, would you accomplish that by the work of your Spirit? Lord, would you show us this wonderful picture in a new and clearer way this morning? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning? I ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So someone earlier uh, this month shared this opening part of a, of a novel with me. Now, I haven't read the rest of this novel. I don't know how it goes from here. But I'm going to read you the first uh, few paragraphs of this book. The book is entitled Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by Susanna Clark. It's a novel about magicians in England. Now, it's going to connect to this passage in just a moment. But let me read these opening paragraphs for you. It says this. Some years ago... There was in the city of York a society of magicians. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say, they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or change a single hair upon anyone's head. But with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. Now, the book breaks down to this point and, and describes this new character coming in, a Mr. Segundus, who comes and is dabbling in magic himself, but has some questions for these, these gentlemen. And so he wrote to them saying that he had begun to wonder why the great feats of magic which he read about remained on the papers of his book and were no longer seen in the streets or written about in the newspapers. Mr. Segundus wished to know, he said, why modern magicians were unable to work the magic they wrote about. 
In short, he wished to know why there was no more magic done in England. It was the most commonplace question in the world. It was the question which, sooner or later, every child in the kingdom asks his governess or his schoolmaster or his parent. Yet the learned members of the York Society did not at all like hearing it asked. And the reason was this. They, they were no more able to answer it than anyone else. All right, now what does that have to do with this passage? If we sub out the word Christian for magician, I think it hits home a little bit. Maybe you've had this experience where you've looked at God's Word, even a text like John 17, where it's this wonderful, beautiful picture of Jesus and God the Father speaking to each other. Or maybe it's in the Old Testament, and you see pictures of, of miracles, of plagues, of God bringing His justice to bear on the world. Maybe it's the New Testament. Maybe it's Jesus turning water to wine. All of these wonderful things that we, we read about and we know in God's Word and then we ask the question, now, now why is that just sort of on these, these pages? Why isn't my life look more like this? Why, like Mr. Segundus, don't we ask this question and say, what's the answer? Why isn't there more of what we might see in this scripture in, in, our, in our world? Now, we're not going to unpack all the ins and outs of that answer this morning, but what we are going to see is that in this passage of scripture, John 17, God, in, in a very real and tangible way, is communicating to us the reality of who God is at all times. This is who God is. This isn't just on some page in Scripture where we get this interesting little glimpse into who God is. We see the curtain pulled back, and we see how God has been before there was time, before there was a world. This is what God has been doing, this Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all of that together in this wonderful picture. And it's something that we need for those moments when maybe Scripture seems distant, when the realities of God's Word seem distant. This picture needs to penetrate our hearts and our minds so that we see what is actually true. That God, if we're going to take God's Word seriously, this is how God describes the reality of who He is. This is who God is, and we get to see that together this morning. And so that's our, our hope. As we take John 17 seriously, we will see uh, not only what is true, but how we should live in response to it. And it really unfolds in a few ways in terms of how we respond to God's Word. It begins by calling us to participate in this glory that is described. Now, what happens in, in verse 1? We see when Jesus had spoken these words. Now, if you just look around in your Bible, you'll see that Jesus has been speaking for about two chapters. He just keeps going and going. It's one of his longest sort of speeches or really recorded set of teaching that we see in Scripture. And he said many things that maybe we're familiar with, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He said things like, I'm leaving, but my spirit is coming, and it's going to be better for you that that happens. And at the end of all of this teaching, he comes and he gives a picture of a prayer. And it's really a beautiful picture. We don't see Jesus' prayers recorded very often in Scripture. We know that he prays, but here he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he says, Father. He prays. Jesus prays to his, his Father, and he does so in a way that would have been familiar to his disciples. This was the common posture of prayer. He's likely in the upper room as they're going to celebrate the supper together, the Passover, and he looks up and he prays to the one that he calls Father in a way that is very unique, in a way that identifies him as the only begotten Son that John has talked about, God's only Son. This Jesus comes and confesses that who, 
that is who he is, and he prays. And he says this as he spoke to heaven, that his hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, I know we haven't done a whole sermon series through the book of, of John, but you should know that throughout the book of John, there has been this waiting for the hour. Jesus several times has said, my hour has not yet come. And what he's referring to is the cross. He's referring to his death, resurrection, and ascension. All that he came to, to do and accomplish has not yet come. The hour for that has not come, but now it is here. And in this moment, he prays. Now, you might be more familiar with another prayer that Jesus has in this time, right? The prayer of Gethsemane, right? Where he's in the garden and he's praying before he goes to the cross. But even before that time of prayer, we see him praying here and he asks that he would be glorified so that the Son may glorify you. And so it's this picture of Jesus saying, what I'm about to do, going to the cross to die and rise, and, and all of that that we know will come is to bring glory to God the Father. And he asks that he would be glorified so that he can bring glory to God. Now, at this point, this might just sound great. There's God. He's glorifying. He's talking about glory. That all makes sense, right? God is beautiful. He's majestic. He's holy. He's righteous. All of those things that should make us want to give glory to God. And it might seem very distant and removed from us. But that's great. He's, he's there. He's having a conversation. He's saying all this wonderful, glorious things. But there's the content of this, but I also want you to see the, the closeness of this the closeness of Jesus and his Father. There isn't distance or separation here. It's not that the Father is somehow far off, but he is, he is present with him spiritually, and there is this, this rich connection there. And then get this. If you look a little further into John 17, we didn't read this, this part together, but if you look down and look at verse 22 of John 17, it says this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now, there's a lot going on here. But in, in a very simple way, what is happening is Jesus is saying, God, what, God the Father, what I want to see happen is that these people who will believe in me, Christians, even you in this room as you believe, I want them to come and experience this wonderful glory, to participate in this eternal reality that I have had even before the beginning of the world. Have you ever asked the question, what was God doing before he created the world? There are various answers to that. Some in church history have said it's just none of your business. Um, that's one answer. But biblically, we actually get a glimpse in this passage of what he is doing. God eternally is glorifying and loving. That is, that is what he's doing. It's not as if before there was creation, it was just darkness and nothingness. No, God was there eternally, perfectly content. He didn't need to create. Sometimes when we think of God as being sovereign and almighty, as, those, as true as those attributes are, those sometimes need him to be you know, sovereign over something, almighty over something. But even here we see before there is any creation, any world, what is there? There is God glorifying and loving himself. And not in some sort of you know, eternal sort of backslapping way where they just sort of congratulate the self-congratulatory circle, but no, in a perfect union that is perfect holy, righteous, and good. Everything that would make us awestruck, everything that would give us a sense of wonder and glory and majesty, all of that eternally existing. And what does he say in verse 22? But that we are to participate in that, to be drawn into that reality, that, that heavenly reality of the Trinity. 
It doesn't mean we become part of the Godhead. It doesn't mean we become gods. That's not what Scripture teaches. But it is to say that we get to enjoy this life of wonder and glory in heaven with God eternally. And, and that's something I'm sure you've, you've heard before, that we get to live with God if we have faith in Christ, if he forgives us of our sins. We get to live with God forever, and that's wonderful. But I think often that, that hope is so distant to us. It's so fuzzy. We don't have a clear picture of what it is. But this is what Scripture offers to us, this warm picture that we get to participate in this. Our shorter catechism that is part of sort of our constitution as a church says simply that what our chief end is, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And maybe you've heard that before, glorify God, enjoy Him forever. And I think we all say, that's great, I'm going to do that. But, but this is what it's described here, forever participating in this wonderful Trinitarian reality of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And I know the Spirit isn't listed here in this, this part of the text, but in John 16 it is, and the work of the Spirit is, is very much what draws us into this reality. This is what we, we get. Maybe, maybe think of it this way. This is this wonderful, glorious thing going on eternally, the Trinity loving itself, all of this wonderful thing. And sometimes we're over here and we say, that's, that's great, that's up there, but I'm still, still living here. Think of it this way. I don't know about your neighborhoods in, in Bernie and, and around the community, but uh, come 4th of July, uh, really July 2nd through like July 10th, what happens every night at like 8.30 to midnight? Fireworks, right? My neighborhood starts early and they go late. The fireworks keep, keep going. Now, there's a part of, of me having a dog and three kids, that gets kind of grumpy for that whole period of time, right? Because you're, you're kind of, you get everybody down and you wait for the first fireworks to go off and hope nobody, nobody wakes up. Why do I bring this up? Well, I think sometimes the reality is that for, for us as Christians, if you believe in Christ today, this, this wonderful heavenly reality is going on. It's not like happening someday, it's, it's happening right now. Heaven is real. Heaven is a place that people go. Uh, and, and this is what is currently happening. And we're, we're removed from it. And sometimes I think what, what needs to happen is those fireworks, as they keep going off, eventually get my sort of grumpy self in a celebratory mood. After a while, you look at enough fireworks, and you're like, okay, it's, it's kind of wonderful, all those kind of things. That's what needs to happen in our hearts with a passage like John 17. That this, this heavenly celebration slowly but surely, needs to permeate into our very affections, into our very souls and our very hopes. Because this is what we will do eternally. We will enjoy this wonderful Trinitarian relationship. And that, I know that might seem kind of fuzzy. That might not seem as, as perfectly sort of outlined as we would like. But this is what Jesus, before he goes to the cross, prays for that we would experience, that we would participate, that we would have some of this glory and wonder that he has had eternally with his, with his Father. And how do, we, how do we begin to see that? Well, we need to know where Jesus speaks. Simply, it begins by turning to Scripture and seeing that long ago, as Hebrews remind us, God spoke by prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the exact imprint of God's nature. As we begin to anticipate and grow our desire for this wonderful reality that is ours, we turn to Scripture. Maybe think of it this way. Think of some of the symptoms in your life that reflect a, a godless life. Let's put it that way. 
A godless life just means a life that is not lived for God, a life that is lived sort of with God, maybe in the background, but not really in the center of our hope and our affection. Some of the symptoms of a godless life are a joyless life. Often when we are joyless, it is because the heavenly reality, the reality of who God is, hasn't permeated into our hearts. Maybe a godless life shows up as sort of unchecked independence. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to pursue comfort, even as we confessed in our prayer this morning together. Pursue comfort apart from God. Pursue joy apart from God. Maybe it shows up in a loveless life, an overly critical life, a prayerless life. We could go on. There are many symptoms that all of us, to a greater or lesser degree, probably exhibit that we have godless, godless lives. But the beautiful thing about this passage and about Scripture is in those moments of a godless life, Scripture doesn't come and sort of condemn us in that it invites us to the enjoyment of God. It invites us to come and pursue God and to enjoy Him, to not be sort of sitting there and just watching the fireworks go off and being grumpy, but turning to God and saying, God, this is who you are. Would you show me more of this? I don't understand it fully, but I want to, I want to know you. I want to pursue you. I want to have a heavenly participation. Now, I want to be clear here. As we look at Scripture, the whole picture of, of what God describes as what's going to happen, we sometimes get the picture of, of heaven as, you know, sitting and just praising and playing harps. Do we play harps in heaven? Yeah, there, there are biblical texts that say we do. But there are also biblical texts that say the new heavens and the new earth come down and we're going to garden, and there are going to be fruit trees and vineyards and all of those things. So we need to have this sort of full-orbed view of what heaven is, the fullness of that reality, of being in God's presence and enjoying and exploring His, his new creation together. All of that is, is part of what we see. We need that full view as we begin to grow in our longing and our anticipation to be in God's, God's presence eternally. Maybe what are some concrete ways we can, we can do that? We've mentioned Scripture, turning there, singing. Singing together is a heavenly participation of something we will do together. Part of how we prepare for this reality, how we begin to live and participate in it even now, is to address our, our concerns about everything in this world. Is what, is what happens in this world important? Yes. Is it of ultimate significance? No. There is a new heavens and a new earth where God will reign perfectly and completely, even as he does now, even in ways we don't always understand. Begin to train our minds in that way to be serious about prayer. Even in the mundane things about how we treat our loved ones, whether they're siblings or spouses or friends or parents, as we treat those people, those are a reflection of where our, our priorities are and whether we embody this love that is described in this eternal reality. Verse 26 of, of chapter 17 marks that Jesus wants the love that the Trinity has to be present in us, that we would be one. These are ways that we begin to say, this is the reality that is given to us that we get to live into and enjoy. It's the next thing we get to do. We get to enjoy these gifts. Look at verse 2 and verse 3 with me. Verse 2 is, is a picture in a moment of sort of Jesus being given authority over all flesh, which is all humanity, to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is a picture of, of what is coming, that Jesus, not in sort of because of his obedience, but because of how God planned things, has authority over all humanity to give them eternal life, given those who are given to him. 
So certain people are given to, to Jesus. He gives them eternal life. That's the picture. And, and then the real next part that we need to focus on is verse 3, where we see what this eternal life is. Now, what is eternal life? All of us would say living forever, right? That's not quite how it's, it's defined here. Interestingly enough, it, it means that eternal life is living forever in heaven forever. That's a biblical reality. But as it's described here, we see this. And this, verse 3, is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Now, how is eternal life described here? Literally, the eternal life is life in the age to come. It is described as knowing Jesus and knowing God. And not in a sort of didactic way, not in just sort of an accumulation of, of facts. That's honestly how most of us probably think of knowing something, right? We've accumulated a knowledge base. We know directions to something. We know the answer to a test question. We know things. But the knowledge here is one of experiential and relational connection with God himself. And this isn't the only place we see this in Scripture. We know Paul in Philippians says this, Philippians 3.8. He compares everything else as loss except what? The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That is what the joy is. That is what is described here, that actually knowing God is profoundly valuable to us. Knowing Jesus, that is eternal life. Now, why is it described that way by John? Because in eternity, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be with God. We'll be forever with the Lord. And that means we'll know Him and grow more and more and more in our knowledge of Him and our love for Him. And so that's, that's what's described here. That we, and the beautiful thing about that is that isn't just some future reality. It is the life to come, but it begins now as we begin to know God, as we seek to know Him through His Word, through Scripture, through the Spirit. All of these things that are given to us, we get the benefit of this eternal reality sort of working backwards and penetrating into our lives even now. At the core of all of this, how is all of this possible? Well, it's, it's not directly talked about in this text, but very much in the background is the cross. The cross that makes all of this possible. The work of God giving His Son for our penalty, for our payment. And all that is, is true there sort of underpins this and makes this reality something that is, is actually for us, something that we can, can enjoy. So how do we grow in knowledge? How do we grow in knowledge of God? Well, maybe the most simple way to do that is to actually ask for it. Most of us, when we think about knowing God, are, go and, and this is maybe not just me, but we go and buy like a, a book, right? Now, are good books good? Yes, books are good. Now, and, and maybe we go buy something like a Bible handbook, and we're going to learn the Bible really well, and so we get into the history of it. Is that good? Yes, we should do that. That is a necessary part of understanding God's God's word, but maybe the most simple and straightforward way to begin to know God is to, to ask the Spirit to teach us who God is, to actually ask the Spirit to reveal to us through God's word who he is. And, and that's something I think many of us have done, but maybe not with the consistency that would be helpful to go to God even today and say, Lord, I, I know you, but I want to know more of you. My eternal reality will be knowing you forever, perfectly and increasingly in heaven together with you in the new heavens and the new earth, Lord, would you begin that work even now of showing me what eternal life is, of knowing Jesus, and seeing that as a surpassing greatness. And many of us might, might assent to that, might know that, 
But we also need to know that there are often obstacles to that, right? Many of the things that we think are important, our desires sort of get in the way. And for some of us, we think of spending eternity with, with God, and we say, I guess that's good, but I, I, I kind of like some of the other things, right? I, I'd rather do this, or I'd rather do that. But even as we begin to know God more, our desire for His presence will increase. And we'll begin to see even more and more the reality of the gospel brings us into this new reality. And this isn't, this isn't something just for sort of the, the, the moments where we're having deep thoughts about God. This is for concrete parts of your life, the mundane things like a sleepless night. Maybe that's not so mundane, of car repairs, of sickness, of homework. All of the things that you guys spend your days doing, this heavenly reality can and does, by the power of God's Spirit, begin to penetrate into that and begin to give us hope and a a new perspective of actually enjoying God in the middle of these things, that we can see the things that he takes us through as things that we are learning more and more of God's God's character. Knowing God is knowing his, his character, knowing who he is, knowing how he responds, knowing what he teaches us. All of that is our, our great and eternal hope. And it is an eternal hope. Look with me at verse 4 and 5. It says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, my Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. It's a beautiful picture, one that stretches our minds and our, and our faith in many, many ways. But see there for a minute what he's saying is, is bring back the reality, return to the reality in a sense that has always been there. He's been incarnate on earth, and he returns to the glory that he has before the world existed. And again, as we saw in verse 22, that we are drawn into this. Look with me at verse 24 of John 17. It says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know unto them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I know there's lots going on there, and it's, it's hard to follow, but did you see what happened in verse 24 where he says that he wants us to be there with him? And maybe if, if you take nothing else away from this passage this morning, know this, that Jesus desires his people to be in God's presence with him. That Jesus actually wants us there. And I think that's, that's really hard to get our minds around. He wants us to see his, his glory. Many of us, we just have this ingrained view of, of God's glory being so majestic that we're, we're undone by being there. And so eternity sounds like us just sort of laying flat on our face before the glory of God. But Jesus desires us to be there. He wants us there. He, he, he says, Father, would you do this, that they may see this glory and they may know not just the glory, but the love that we have. This is something that we need to take into those mundane mundane moments in our life. Many of us are very myopic, right? We have a a nearsightedness. I read recently that myopia is is growing, especially in, in younger people. And do you know why? Why do you think myopia is growing in younger people? Yeah, staring at a screen. And, and not adjusting your eyes and not going, literally the prescription I heard was just to go outside and spend time. So you are looking at the horizon. Now if that's true of our children, and many of us even in this room, that our, our vision is, is physically sort of constrained to the, the, what is near to us. How much more so spiritually? 
How much more so spiritually are we myopic, focused simply on what is, is here and now? And, and again, what is here and now is, is very important. It matters how we raise our families, how we care about the world, how we engage in the world. All of those things matter, but, but what John 17 and so many other places in Scripture do is it, it forces our eyes off the momentary things and to the eternal reality that this is what is offered to us, eternal love, eternal glory being witnessed by us as we participate in that reality. And for some of us, that might seem somewhat unimaginable. It might seem that our aloneness, our sin, our just lack of experience with God, all of those things might sort of get in the way of us understanding it, but what is described here is, is what is true. We don't need to conjure some sort of magical spell to pull it back off the, the dusty pages, as it were. This is who God is. Not just someday, but, but now. Now, in reality, is what is happening in this text. And we, by His Spirit, by His grace, can begin to understand and know more of that. Know that you were invited into this reality. If you have faith in Christ today, that this reality described here is not a distant one, but one that is, is for you. It is for us. That we can even, in a sense, begin eternity now as we seek to know and glorify God and enjoy Him. As we do that now, it is beginning the eternal reality that is for us. And we can pray together that the Spirit by his grace and mercy, would make us more and more aware of this reality, that it would truly penetrate our hearts so that we would know our Savior. We would know the true God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glimpse, as it were, into the heavenly reality. Lord, there is so much wonder and amazement that, that we sometimes sense in this passage, and other times it may seem even, even more distant than others. By the power of your Spirit and your grace, Lord, would you help us know Jesus? Spirit, would you help us know the Father? That we may bring glory to them. That we may know their love. Lord, would you whet our appetites, even through this meal today, for your eternal love and glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take a moment and we'll prepare to meet together at the table.